0: Lynn, could you briefly introduce yourself? You know, what do you study? What year are you? So on.
1: Yeah, uh, thank you, Brian, for inviting me to this show. I I am Lin Lee. I am a fifth-year PhD candidate. That means I'm in the five fifth year of my program and uh, became a candidate last year after passing my comms uh, in the Department of Media and Information. So I study specifically how people use this how people use in, uh, mediated technologies for communication with their social networks, as well as using those technologies for self-management of health. So the technologies I've studied, including social media um, and then fitness trackers, which is a very popular tool for how people manage their health. And before coming to MSU, I have a master's degree in journalism and mass communication from Tsinghua University in China. I also has a bachelor's degree in teaching Chinese as a second language uh, from Shanghai University in China.
0: Very cool. Very cool. So first I'll kind of like focus on your research a little bit. So when you say wearable technologies, is that like Fitbits and, you know, the Apple, kind of like those type of technologies? Is that what you're talking about?
1: Yes. So for one project, I've been heavily involved with also led several projects on it's um, a project I started in 2017 with a group of researchers from College of Communication Arts and Science, as well as um, nursing, to study how older adults use uh, wearable activity trackers, which is just what you said, fitness trackers, such as Fitbit, Apple Watch, um, and there are many other like smaller brands.
0: Okay. What is considered older adult? Is that like the elderly?
1: (laughs) (laughs) In a very academic sense, uh, we define it as older adults for like 65 years and older. Uh, The rationale is that fitness trackers are heavily marketed towards young people, which is like Mm -hmm. a symbol of healthy lifestyle. It's cool. It's a new form of tech gadget. But actually, it's very useful in terms of monitoring your step counts, your heart rate, um some of the trackers also has like um like even blood pressure and like stress levels, and you have like a very readable and understandable version of all your all your bio all your like um indicators of your health so for older adults who are like struggling a little bit with managing chronic disease, they can benefit more from using trackers to have that knowledge, and even when they go to doctors, they can show. Oh, I've exercised, or this is how many calories? So those sort of information is very useful uh, to manage health to like improve their physical and mental well-being. So that's why we started with studying the older adults population.
0: Oh, okay. Um, there's probably like no good way to actually answer this, but I'm kind of curious like how many, like how common are these you know, devices used by by older people, because you know, like you said, it's you know marketed towards young people, and I could say like, oh, this newfangled technology or you know, whatever stereotype.
1: Right. Yeah. I I think definitely I cannot uh, come up with like a population level statistic saying how many percentage of older adults are using those fitness trackers, but I I think just by anecdotally, a lot of older adults receive them as gifts. And then Mm -hmm. they do, they did end up sitting in their counters and, you know, Mm -hmm. not, so one of the, one of the major areas I studied is the long-term use of those trackers. Like what are the factors, what are the like components that contribute to long-term use? But I, I think um, based on the, based on like we, we did both qualitative study and uh, qualitative study. So I, I think the major issue is with long-term use. But the um, the kind of the initial initiation of wearing trackers, how many people are actually doing that, I think it's very, I cannot, sorry, I cannot answer mm-hmm. that very accurately.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, I was just kind of curious because as you can not say, it's just like, I'm just can't you know I that's not really a like a population that I think of you. Know. That's
1: true. Do your grandparents like wear trackers? Are you any aware of that?
0: No, my my grandparents are not you know technology savvy at all.
1: Yes, I think so. That's the stereotype. I I think, but they do receive them as gifts, and I think in our study I would found we would find a lot of older adults start using that because they had a health scare, like because Mm. the doctors are alerting them, you have high blood pressure issues, you need to start doing exercise, you need to start paying attention to a diet. So I think those type of like uh, meaningful starts will help them with like staying on track in terms of using it.
0: Okay. So your work is, maybe it's a combination of both, um, is it more on focusing the actual data that can be collected by this technology or is it more on the populations like themselves of of CAD drag I'm just kind of like curious like when you say so you're in like the department of media information like yeah I am unfamiliar with you know this kind of department in general so I was like it was just kind of like interesting. I'm like, oh, well, that's not where I would have expected someone studying that to to be. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I'm really glad you asked that. I think, I think the data we are collecting as social because in Department of Media Information we mostly identify as social scientists, so we don't mm-hmm. really deal directly with data from trackers themselves. So those will be log data, like you have mm-hmm. um, very specific data on like when the tracker is. Activated. How many step counts every day? How many like? What is the blood pressure going across time? So we don't have access to those data because usually it's it's like owned by the company and it's mm. very hard to obtain them. I, I think unless you design your own device, which is some of the professors I know in in Department of Communication who's working with uh, professors in College of Engineering that will design their own device and that those devices will passively collect all the mm. sensitive all the data by the trackers, and then do correlations with their physical uh, well-being. You know, a lot of studies done in health and medicine and engineering interdisciplinary studies will have that sort of collaboration. In this project, we started with collecting participants' self-reported data, and then we did focus group and interviews to get like a more in-depth idea of what's going on beyond the survey data.
0: Okay, very cool. How did you kind of, you know, become a part of this project going in when you started your PhD program? Were you already interested in, you know, this wearable technology or is this like, oh, you just kind of like stumbled into this, this topic?
1: I think it's a combination of both. Um, I feel like by being uh, my advisor, Dr. Wei-Peng had like already assembled the team so she was asking me if you're interested in working in the capacity of an RA for this project and attend weekly meetings, do interviews, like preparing for the materials and follow up, which is like writing up the studies. So I I, I was interested when I started with the PhD program, I was, has like a generic idea of how I wanted to study like new technology and house and well being, And I did not pick like a specific technology that I wanted to study and the by I think by knowing her by working with the professors on those team on that team I had kind of had a more clear idea of like what technology is doing to house and what is the potential in terms of studying in this area and what where do I see myself even pursuing after my graduate studies so I think it's a combination of both and I'm grateful for having that opportunity.
0: Yeah, great. How about like, how big is this research team? Is it just you and your advisor? Is there like a larger group of people involved?
1: I I think the team had a larger, definitely had a larger mm-hmm. group when we started. I think I remember there is um, me and my advisor. There was a postdoc in my department. There's another professor in my department. And then there is uh, RAs in the School of Nursing as well as another uh, Sparrow Hospital Centers. So there's, um, a whole, there's probably eight or nine people involved in the beginning. And I think um, I still kind of think of those days when everybody in the conference room talking through the project very fondly because it was like beginning of my graduate program and it was really nice to have like a uh, research team as a give me like a sense of community. Um, As kind of everybody moves out, and like I've learned that research projects just drags on forever, Mm and it takes forever to publish everything. So I'm still here in my fifth year of my graduate program, and we're still uh, working on some of the publications of that project. And people have moved on; a lot of them have changed institutions, have changed careers. So it's it's kind of funny to see how how the team started and then now we're in a completely different place.
0: Yeah. That was like one of the biggest things I noticed when starting grad school is just like everything takes much longer than I feel like, like I initially would have thought.
1: <laughs> For sure. Yeah. It's aston- it's astonishing. They should tell grad students before yeah. <laughs> they enter grad school.
0: <laughs> I'm like, so you to sort of like, Oh yes. Oh, you just do this thing. And it's like ABC. You just chug through it and now it's like "Mm, I feel like I've been working on this one particular small thing for for months on end yeah
1: yeah because ABC itself turns into another ABC and Mm -hmm. yes yeah they all have
0: there's subsets and then you realize oh no I have to go back because I did something wrong or I for sure
1: yeah
0: yeah um how has like the COVID, like pandemic stuff, you know, impacted, you know, your work?
1: Um, I think I, like I'm Chinese, a lot of, uh, a lot of my Chinese friends constantly ask me that question because uh, COVID in China has largely been under control for mostly, for most of last year and this year. Mm. And I, I think I reflect on this a lot thinking, oh, what are my, what are, how are the impacts uh, of this pandemic? I feel like most of it, in terms of professional work, it hasn't been that bad. I I think most of the impact has been uh, socially, which I think also social. The impact on social lives also bleeds into professional life a little bit in very indirect and pr- probably unconscious ways, because uh, the lack of like saying hello to each other and like running mm-hmm. into each other in hallways and catching up. I feel like that a lot of those things are gone and I'm not unable to kind of just meet professors or fellow graduate students to talk about whatever ideas we have to to share the common common experiences of the pandemic. Instead, we're all uh, organized very neatly into Zoom meetings but Zoom meetings are also organized very neatly based on specific agendas. So it's very task oriented and it's very almost impersonal in that way. So the pandemic in terms of like writing papers or, or finishing specific projects, I don't think it has been that crippling because you still have access to library, you have access to those people. But I think, um, I think indirectly, those lack of social connections in informal ways uh, may actually have like a long lasting impact on my graduate program, than i i I can think of right now because um a lot of people may not even I may not even be able to attend graduation or you know all those fun seminar activities listening to people talking it's yeah that is uh, that element has been the most I guess um uh, re- problematic in that way yeah
0: yeah yeah I can definitely relate that to that a lot i I felt like my first year when I was still, like, I was still taking classes, um, and it's like, okay. And then we went online and I'm like, okay, well maybe in that sense, I am more productive because now I didn't have distractions or anything, but then it was like, but then I never, I never talked to anyone. I never saw anything. Um, yeah, you, you, you're not just in the, <coughs> excuse me, you're not just in the office, you know, I can just ask someone a question right then and there, you know, But now everything's like an email that, you know, maybe someone responds to or, yeah, it's just very impersonal.
1: Yeah. And if you don't, if they don't respond, you can never really catch them in person and ask, Mm -hmm. hey, did you see my email? What is going on? You know, those informal conversations are gone. Hopefully we can have them back soon, but uh, we don't know yet.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I can't, I want to kind of jump back to like your undergrad experience and just kind of like work up to now. So you said you did your, your undergrad in, in China and you said, was that when you said you're teaching Chinese as a second language?
1: Yes. That's my undergrad major.
0: Okay. Can you, can you kind of talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. I think it's very interesting. Like uh, my transition of like being a language major to right now, more of us, I identify as a social scientist. And when I was in my undergrad, I I think mostly we took a lot of language courses um, because teaching Chinese as a second language is kind of what Chinese government had in mind in terms of modeling the teaching English as a second language major mm-hmm. that is very widespread in like in England and in the US. So we were basically trained to teach Chinese as a second language in the English setting. So a lot of the courses are on English language and English literature. And we basically are held to the same standard as people who are in, in the English major. And then we also have some courses on Chinese language, Chinese culture, Chinese um, co- uh, literature, and also some of the intercultural communa- communication courses and teaching, teaching practices courses. I, I think, Now I think back on my undergrad, I think it served uh, the purpose of helping me kind of see um, the English, uh, the intercultural communication part, as well as help me basically hold my English to the degree that I feel comfortable doing a PhD program in the US.
0: Okay, very cool. How did you get interested in studying that to begin with?
1: Oh, I was just, um, I think, i um I am one of those kids who didn't really know what I was going into college for, so, but I always uh, loved studying foreign languages, and I also loved like Chinese literature. so I think that major was a very perfect balance of both sides of the culture that I'm interested in, and um, I kind of feel like I did learn what I needed to learn from my undergrad. Okay.
0: Very interesting. And then you went on and you did your master's and I'm sorry, I forgot what what was your master's in?
1: In journalism and math.
0: Okay. Yeah. And math communication.
1: Yeah. Uh, No. Math as in M.A.S.S. You are thinking about are you thinking about like mathematics? Yes. (laughs) Yes. I'm sorry. (laughs) I wish that it's a thing, but that's not a thing.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. So mass, as in like communicating to a yes,
1: broad group, As in of like radio, television, and um, yeah. So, so I think I was I worked as a student reporter in my undergrad for like three years for my school's website. So I got interested in wanting to uh, pursue journalism and become a journalist. So that's why I did my master's in that area. But in my master's degree, I had an advisor who graduated from um, Texas AM University in the U.S. who has, like, it's a very academic-oriented setting, and he kind of showed me the way in terms of how to do social science research, and I got really interested in social science, and I took um, a lot of stats class, a lot of, like, research methods, some research methods class to get me started on how to think about, like, social science problems and phenomena. And I, I was fascinated by that route, and that's why I decided to do a PhD.
0: Okay. So then um, when you're doing your PhD and you're trying to find programs to look for, how do you, how do you end up in, in Michigan? Why is Michigan State the, the one that you ended up at?
1: Um, I think I remember thinking, like, applying for grad school in the U.S. It's such a complicated process, like, mm-hmm. as a foreign applicant. I had to go through GRE and TOEFL, which is another like English exam that tests your English ability to in academic settings. And I remember like spending months just preparing for GRE and preparing for that exam. Um, So after I got everything uh, ready in terms of like test scores and GPAs and and I applied, I think I applied to seven or eight schools in the U.S., most of them focusing, having a focus on, like, new media technologies. So, um, and I got, I think I got, eventually I got three offers, and I choose Michigan State mostly because I, of course, uh, primarily it's because Michigan State has a much better, uh, strong program than the other universities who offered me a graduate assistantship. And also my advisor, Dr. Wei-Peng, she... I, she was at uh, my master's school for or for a seminar so we hmm. connected then and i felt like it was a natural choice for me to go to the best school that admitted me also having this person who can kind of um help me get oriented in the whole graduate oh. process yeah
0: oh very great how was that that transition to to moving to the us was that relatively smooth or was it you know kind of rough
1: (laughs) it's pretty rough i think I, i feel like there is definitely some imbalance in information in terms of what is what i as a chinese uh foreign applicant um had access to like when i was uh in china my whole perception of what the u.s is and what u.s graduate school is turns out to be Uh, very different from the reality that I've experienced. So I think the transition, not only academically, but also culturally and personally has been transformative. I I, I do think it makes Mm -hmm. me a little bit, it does make me having so much more appreciation for like community, for, for support, for family and friends. But I think, um, the imbalance in information is definitely Mm -hmm. something I see that is already being resolved. Like a lot of Chinese PhD students or uh, PhD students would do this sort of information session to Chinese applicants. I think especially Michigan with the harsh winter. It was like, Mm -hmm. because I, I grew up in the southern part of China, which is very warm and seldom snows. So I think that took me I don't think that took me by surprise. I I think I was prepared for it, but I wasn't really. Like, I had no idea. Uh, It's this this amount of snow and this long of a winter.
0: Yes, it it never ends. But today, the sun actually made an appearance. So that's, you know, unique.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes, it's delightful. (laughs)
0: Um, Very cool. So, like, I know when, you know... I lived in like Colorado, Arizona, part of, of the US and like, I've only lived in Michigan for you know, the year and a half for, for grad school so far. I know for me, like at least like coming here, like I didn't, I didn't know anyone in Michigan. It was very rough to like can't meet people and like finding a community for myself. Um, have you kind of found like a community of, of people or friends that you can you know, connect with while, while here?
1: Yeah, I think I definitely, over the years, I've gotten a bit better at doing that. I think as um, for a long time, there is a sense of like, I'm a foreigner. I don't belong here. That sense is kind of very um, lonely in that way. Like as an international student, I I think right now, I'm in my fifth year of living in the U.S. I was like taking a stock of my all my friends and relationships. I actually am very grateful that I, was able to kind of make a community, however virtual that is, Mm -hmm. it is virtual. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I I think mostly, most of my friends are, do not live in Michigan, but we Mm -hmm. all kind of talk on a daily basis and we share a lot of experiences because I meet them often in conferences in my field. Mm -hmm. And um, so we can like talk about academic stuff. We can talk about personal Mm -hmm. stuff. And even though it's not like physical, physically we're not very close, but I think this is also part of my research area, like how technology is mediating their mm-hmm. communication and the effects on well-being. So it's really about like who you're communicating with, using those technology, and what is the nature, uh, what is the nature of the relationship. So I, I think I was able to grow very close to most to all of my friends. And before pandemic, I do travel to see them within the United States. So, yeah, I think I think um, there's definitely some like learning curve of how to do mm-hmm. that. But I think once you do, I I think it's um, it feels much more. It is very worthwhile to do. And mm-hmm. what because it's PhD is such a like difficult process then having a community of people who share that experience and supports you is one of the most important components for you to succeed.
0: Okay, thank you for sharing. Um, I guess have another question, you can either speak from a, you know, personally or maybe from a more professional aspect, whatever you feel more comfortable with. But I know like from my personal experience especially at like the beginning of kind of like this whole pandemic everything goes virtual it was maybe one positive you know minor positive and you know in the scale of everything but since you know I didn't have a lot of friends here in Michigan per se I'm like oh okay but everyone was at home so it was a great way to have all these zoom meetings and stuff with you know friends from from all over and so like we would you know, there's a good span of time where, you know, every week or something, you know, a group of, of friends who I hadn't seen in a while, we all agreed to like meet and do all kind of like the social, virtual, whatever. But then I feel like as we've gone on, we're now almost close to a year. And I feel like Zoom fatigue is <laughs> like, everyone is on Zoom all the time. And at least I've noticed like, oh, okay, these are much more infrequent because people don't want to get on our Zoom meeting. Um, how have you kind of like maintained or how are, you know, relationships kind of maintained, you know, in the long-term ter- long of, you know, this kind of current setting? That
1: is that a, sense? I think, um, I think my, my immediate response to that is to call instead of mm-hmm. using Zoom. Mm-hmm. um uh my own research as well as other people's you know you probably will find that easier because phone calls uh, are only voice so it's research will tell suggest that uh voice only communication is better for empathetic accuracy which is uh like understanding other people's true emotions and mood so when you're communicating over video calls you also has to process the other people's facial expressions and somewhat body express nonverbal body languages. So it's very taxing in that way. And when you're just calling using voice itself, is it helps with understanding, but you also don't have the added like cognitive um uh, capac cognitive like burden to do all the non-f- non-facial things. So that's one thing. And I I I think I do relate to what you said about. Zoom fatigue, and now we're a year into this. And I have no idea uh, in general, like how life or when life will return to normal. And experts have given various timelines. And as we've learned, they're not to be trusted with, like, um, not to say don't trust experts, but you know, it's a very fluid and dynamic situation. And we're all kind of um, having new expectations as data come in. And I, I feel that it's like, it's very um, unsure of how things will be. And it, the current isolation does feel semi-permanent in the sense that I cannot travel. I, I don't know when I will see people face-to-face and I adore those people, but you know we also have such busy lives constantly being consumed about where doing all this whatever academic stuff or professional life stuff, uh, individually. And if you are, you do not already have a very, like for me, for, for people who do not already have like a well-rounded support system, family members who spouse or a kid or, or, you know, children to, to rely back on, uh, it is, it is hard. I think, um, I really don't, I really also don't know like any sort of answer to that besides um, staying optimistic and staying hopeful. And yeah.
0: All right. Well, well thank you for, for sharing. Uh, maybe jumping to like a little, you know, ha- happier note. <laughs> um, um, like when you're, say either... Maybe, maybe when you're an undergrad or even when you're a grad student, were you ever a part of, say, like clubs or organizations or like what were some of your hobbies, you know, outside of outside of school?
1: Yeah, I, I think when I was I mentioned when I was undergrad, I was a student reporter. I mm-hmm. that was really uh, fun. I think I was able to kind of just attend a lot of school events, even like meetings to see what are the like newest developments in campus, like what is the newest student activity events. And I wrote, basically wrote like news updates for the school website. So, so I, I think that was helpful in terms of also networking with people outside of my own major. And a lot of, some of my friends are still um, from that time when like outside of my major. So I think it's good to expand, um, expand interests and skills in that way. And I, I think in my, in moving to grad school, in master's and grad stu- uh, in PhD studies, I don't do that as much, mostly because like academic life is very, uh, it's very challenging and demanding in, in terms of like the amount of work you have to do and um, also the uh, commitments you have. So, but outside of, um, outside of my work, I do uh the 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 activities i do mostly i really uh i took on a lot of like swimming running and recently well not recently in the past 2 years i started doing yoga and i i think it's like a work life balance and uh to as someone who studies a lot of health behaviors <laughs> i like to like know oh these are the benefits of health behaviors and those are the um goals you need to meet in terms of like maintaining a healthy body. So I try to stay active and, um, I take long walks. So, and I also, I also, I used to write a blog, uh, in Chinese for many years. And also I don't do that. The last entry is in 2017. I'm sad to say Mm -hmm. so, but I think writing has also helped me staying sane and, you know, on track with
0: whatever I wanted to accomplish in life. Awesome. Very, very good. Very interesting to hear. How I'm just kind of curious, how consistent have you been with yoga? Like recently, I say recently, I've spent a couple of years now, like I tried getting into yoga and I really do it. And now like I try to do it, but sometimes it's like I, I have phases of like, I am consistent about it. And then I have phases where I am not consistent about it.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's very, hard to form like a habit. So like especially like a habit that takes commitment. And I started getting into yoga because one of my friends in the program um went like started going to yoga classes and she invited me to go with her. And that was something that we can do together for fun outside of school. It was a bonding experience in in some way. And I kind of uh I started going to a yoga studio regularly and then after the pandemic, I just uh, did it at home most uh, uh, most regularly. I I think like uh, we have like the same thing goes with like the fitness tracker thing because the fitness tracker project one of the one of the publication looks at how people form habits of using the tracker because um, because it's very it's very hard to stay with it for a new thing and there are certain like strategies to to put in place so you can, so you can like kind of pre plan for plan for possible like lapses in behaviors and also encourage yourself to, to stay with that. I I think, I think it's just like grad school. So it's so sometimes a lot of the work is so mental and like mental and cognitively very challenging. So I take on yoga. So it's like physically I can, I can also uh, relax. I can also uh, literally flex my muscles.
0: <laughs> that's good. All right, I'm very bad at flexing my muscles there. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's like similarly, like I got involved with it because some friends were doing it. And so like we would go together to the same little sessions or whatever. I'm like, okay, it was a nice little, it was easier to go when there's a group of people that I know going um, I kinda of had uh, like this idea when you were talking just now about like the fitness tracker stuff and like incentives and stuff. I'm just kinda of curious on your thoughts. Like I know with like my Fitbit thing, you know, I like doing the little the little leagues of like my friends or whatever and I'm, like how oh, I can see how I can, you know, more or less compete, you know, you know, nothing like serious. But it's like, oh, okay, it's, you know, that was like a nice little incentive. But, like, okay, I have to get my steps so I can, you know try to get up on this little leaderboard or something. I was kind of curious on, on your thoughts of that, or, you know, if there's yeah. anything showing that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think competition is, um, comes up consistently as one fun element that keeps people mm-hmm. using the tracker because you can compare with your friends in terms of step com- counts. And a lot of the older adults do. Like they would be trying to beat their granddaughters or trying mm-hmm. to beat their partners. So, um, I think that element of fun is it's kind of helpful for initiating the behavior mm-hmm. but not necessarily because in the survey results we did find for the older adults population people who do not engage in competition actually stays with their tracker longer because mm-hmm. because some competition can be fun but also you when you don't feel like doing it and when mm-hmm. you know it's you you lose in the competitions it can yeah. be very discouraging so. Rather rather than relying on external external comparisons, what matters more is really your internal like motivation and mm. your reasons for doing it and rely back on that. Um, but uh, in terms of the comparison part, it's also like the theory in psychology that's social comparison. So we have upward social comparison and downward social comparison. Uh, when you are competing with people who are you perceive you think they're doing better than you, it's upward. And when you're like, drawing satisfaction from people who are doing worse than you it's downward so social comparison it's also kind of relating back to why social media is bad for Mm -hmm. mental health is you're comparing yourself too much with Mm -hmm. other people
0: yeah okay very very interesting very interesting all right well I'm going to kind of start like wrapping things up here but so I like to end with like kind of final advice or words of wisdom for you know say like undergrad students thinking about grad school count like what to look for or kind of like adjusting to that to that transition if you have any if any like thoughts come to mind on oh do's or don'ts
1: yeah I think uh I I've been thinking about this constantly lately because I'm on the on the job market and trying to like Identify, trying to find my own little spot in the mm-hmm. like in the in the vast west corner, west corner of like academia. I think I always say to my friends, if I do grad school again, I probably would do it differently. And that's when I I really appreciate your question on like advice to undergrads, even though definitely we're in very different fields. But some of how academia works is probably applicable across the across the board. Um, I think, first of all, I would say uh, before you uh, before you decide to go to a graduate program, definitely talk to people who are in the program because I've learned that graduate program function very differently across different colleges and even departments. So how the funding comes, how, where the funding comes from, like how the assistantship system works, who is how the how the even scholarship and fellowships are awarded those things all can differ by, I think, greatly. So to to figure out each kind of having that institutional knowledge by talking to people who are already in the institution for many years is going to save you so much trouble in like when you actually go there or in making a decision whether or not to go there. And then um, I think secondly, I would say it, it, it really is, like grad school is a time for exploration. You do have like a lot of freedom to take on projects that you you just are interested in. You don't necessarily see its connection to your own main research area yet, but you're like, uh, like what I did with some projects, I'm just simply interested in academic pursuit of this subject. But at some point, I think it's very, very important for you to find your own scholarly identity, to find your own, like, and then find, find people who can help you grow in those uh, areas, so you can have a more focused uh, publication records, a more focused network. So when you start to establish yourself as like a academic academic uh, as a junior scholar, you have um, more resources to to go on. Like you, when people think of you, they should be able to say, yes, she or he studies X Y Z and your identity comes out very clearly to people who are in hiring committees or to people who are in conferences. So I think those are, um, I think perhaps the most important element for you to succeed in academia is to have that identity and have people remember you by that identity.
0: Oh, very good. That is great advice. Yeah, thank you for coming on and joining the podcast. It was a pleasure talking with you.